Hello everyone and welcome. This is Marcus from Gen Con TV and we are back with a new episode of Fireside with Peter Adkisson where the founder of Wizards of the Coast himself takes us on a trip through the untold history of Dungeons and Dragons with special guests from the game's illustrious past. In today's episode, Peter is joined by the sage Skip Williams. So without further ado, we'll drop you right into the conversation. Skip has worked in RPGs for 40 years, including every edition of D&D from the very beginning up through uh, third edition. Uh, he has um, worked on the third edition design team. He was also probably most famous for being the sage on drag in the Dragon Magazine column where you could ask the sage. So uh, I, I'm so looking forward to having Chris uh, skip with us. Ah, why did I call you Chris? Skip. <laughs> you can call me Bob. How's Bob, that? Where you go, Bob. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> oh, thank you, Skip, for being on our show today. Really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here, Peter. Okay, good. So how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. <laughs> yeah, weathering everything all right back there. And well, you're in Wisconsin now, right? You're in you're in Lake Geneva, right? You're back back to where it all began. Well, I'm actually in southwestern Wisconsin these days. Oh, okay. But you were in Lake Geneva, so let's let's start there. So I want to spend a little bit. Um, I know you started working with D and D very early in your life, but what what were you doing before you heard of D and D? But you were uh, before I heard of D and D. I was in school. If that's a fact, far how back I go, far back I go. So you were in in grade school, maybe. Yeah. Well, junior high. Junior high. I'm dating right. myself because that's middle school now. Nobody goes right. to junior high anymore. It's middle school. Right. It's middle school. Yeah. So how did it happen? What how did you get pulled into DD? What was your first experience with Dungeons and Dragons? Well, my how I got pulled into it was uh, the local the local weekly paper, the regional news, had a, a front page picture of with it was a battlefield with with little tanks, and I always thought little tanks were pretty cool. So oh, yeah, little it's, there's little tanks in the paper, and it turned out it was, and it was a article about Gen Con, Gen Con six, I think, or maybe Gen Con five. I don't remember. Right. So uh, which had come and gone, and I without me even knowing about it. Oh, what so, a what a, what a tragedy! Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Fortunately, uh, it came back next year, right? Good. And so I was sort of primed by that. And then the, the next year at school, I ran into a classmate, Don Art, who lent his name to the invulnerable coat of Arn. <laughs> yeah. Gary thought he was always uh, afraid of taking damage. <laughs> he did that a lot, actually. Uh, he had this little map. Uh, he was involved in some sort of a World War II type campaign. They've been playing tactics, and he had it in school with him. So that's how I learned about the LGTSA, which was Gary's organization and the organization uh, that was putting on Gen Con at the time, because that was still before TSR existed. Right. And before D&D, &D, right? Yeah, slightly before D&D. &D. Right. He was working on D&D &D yeah. at the time. Right, right. Actually, somebody I was in Boy Scouts with, Mike Menard, was an early playtester. I didn't know that either. Right. I did not right. discover that until years later. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah. so you went. So, so did you go and and uh, uh, play these games? Uh, play play basically uh, miniatures games, war war games somewhere. Actually, mm -hmm. the first the first real war game I actually ever played was D and D. Okay. Out and bought a copy of D D off Don K's porch. Okay. Don K being at that time the recently deceased partner in what became TSR. Right. Uh, right. Him by a couple of months. Uh, and then yeah, because uh, then time marched on again, and then I was in high school, and then there was another classmate, Marcus Kurowski, who I have not seen in years. Who became a professional accordion player? <laughs> that was the last time I saw him. He was on. He was on a break. He was playing the accordion at Horticultural Hall for a wedding or something. Um, so, so where did your first D and D game take place, and how how did it happen? It happened. It was in. It was 
in the halls of my high school, Badger High School, which is outside of Lake Geneva. Badger is what is known as a union high school. It's where several school districts get together and they build one big school. Uh -huh. After school with Marcus, who had an unusual way of, let us say, he had an unusual, he's a big story guy. He'd be called a story guy these days. Yeah. He would be, he'd be the sort of guy who says the story is more important than anything else. He, he would be that kind of role player if he was still role playing today. I don't know, I don't know that he is. Like I right. say, I haven't seen him in years or heard from him either. Right. So that was a one on one playing a cleric and getting lost in a dungeon. And keep, I kept running into the same group of whites, which I kept turning as a cleric and <laughs> essentially ran around in circles in this dungeon for, I don't know, two and a half hours or whatever. Until right. the late bus came to get us back to town. So right. That was my first D&D game. So um, did you did you play it pretty regularly then? Um, up in, uh, you know, the, take me up to you actually getting, you know, uh, hired or joining in, working on the, working on at TSR or something, proto-TSR, whatever. So, yeah, so about that time they were, they had purchased, the, Gary and Brian had purchased the house at Williams and Marshall Streets. And we're getting ready to open the hobby shop and they were starting to hire people. And um, there was a local, there was a school game club that did D&D now and then. And uh, the, the, the GM there was uh, uh, the fellow who, uh, Joe Fisher, he was the fellow who wrote the original uh, Ranger class. Okay. Uh, and my characters in Joe's game didn't didn't live more than about one adventure. <laughs> whole series of it. I did a whole series of, of of magic users that that pretty much were was were one and out. But in, in the meantime, um, Gary and Duke Seyfried had put their put their heads together and done the Warriors of Mars game. Okay, right. Had to do Barsoom figures. So Gary and Brian Bloom put together Warriors of Mars, and I ran into Ernie Gygax, a former grade school classmate who had this Warriors of Mars in hand and said, do you play games other than D&D? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll try anything once. Sure, sure. So we played the heck out of Warriors of Mars. We went all over Barsoom. Nice including, you know, drove completely nuts because we were role-playing and rolling dice when we should have been doing our homework. So we had one teacher in particular who was just completely over, over he was just completely beside himself over the dice. He just couldn't, dice meant gambling to him. So he thought we were, that we were, you know, winning a floating crack game or something. It was just could not wrap his mind around anything being legitimate yeah you know it's interesting uh john jordan and i who john who was a wizard of the coast uh, early wizards person who uh worked a lot on the international business for magic the gathering at wizards uh we got uh in trouble in italy for playing magic this is very early just actually when magic was being launched in italy for playing magic in a rest in a cafe uh, because same thing, it was considered gambling. Oh, you're playing cards. You can't play cards in public. That's gambling. Like, well, these aren't like poker cards. These are like Magic the Gathering cards. Like, nope, get out of here before I call the cops. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so you're in good company, Skip. Right? I, I it happens. Yeah. Yeah, it happened. To... Uh, yeah. So I, I remember being briefly being the star of my geometry class because we were talking about platonic solids and I, you know, and there was, we had a little film about octahedrons and cubes and I went, there you go. There's an octahedron right here. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, yeah, no, it was, that was probably the sole academic contribution DND made for me, but so it goes. There it goes, so. Well, somewhere along in there, they opened the dungeon hobby shop and I got an after school job there. Oh, and so in the uh, dungeon hall, for people who don't know, that was a, a game store, basically, right? Oh. Uh, yeah, it's um, and so you're in high school still at this time. 
and, high school, yeah. and working working there, uh, working at the hobby shop after school. So how long did you do that before you started uh, working on the publishing side of things? Uh, quite a while, uh, because uh, I then finished high school and went on to college. And um, the, my next job was to help out with Gen Con. Oh, good. But you know other people that work on Gen Con. Just a few, yeah. Yeah, just a few. <laughs> so yeah, I, when I was in, while I was in college, I would come home on the weekends and work in the Gen Con office, and that's how I worked the summers. Right. Uh, so what what did you do uh, for Gen Con? I mean, in, in terms of working on Gen Con, I mean, I know eventually you like ran Gen Con, isn't that right? That's yeah. I've got Joe Orlowski, the current. The first full-time coordinator was, uh, yeah, he left and then I took I took the job. I was his, I was Joe's assistant, so we did. I did everything that needed doing that Joe didn't have time to do. So answering the phone and right. licking envelopes, and yeah. a lot of typing because we did. There was we had no computer support whatsoever. Everything was on paper. Right. Right. So I would sit there and look at event submissions, which were on usually always handwritten on paper forms, and I would type them out one 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 event per sheet, so that we could arrange them and send them to typesetting in any order we wanted. Right. And, and in between that, you know, run to the post office to get the mail and answer the phone and all that sort of good stuff. All the stuff necessary to put on a show. Yes. Yeah. So all the, all the, all the pre-work. Right. Right. Explain to people on the phone that no, you don't have a pre-registration for sure. Cause nobody has one yet. It isn't, it isn't printed yet. So. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I have fond memories of when the event listing was in dragon magazine. Yeah. That was the big deadline was to try to try to have that ready. So they could be tipped into the right. To the right issue of dragon. Right. Right. Yep, and uh, it was uh, it, it was fun. I, I of course could never go to Gen Con, living uh, being uh, you know from a poor to middle class family out in the West Coast. But um, I would always fantasize about going, and I would fill out my event request as if I was going to go. Um, but of course, I wouldn't actually send it in. But just just going through the events and saying, "Ooh, yeah, I want to play in this one. I'm gonna play in that one. That one's fun." Uh, yeah. So um uh so. What was the next, uh, so, so you, you did that for uh, a few years or what? How, how long were you working yeah, on Gen Con? Years summer? and then, and then the company got into trouble and that's, that's been talked about. That's been talked about the death other places. The company got into trouble and they had been busy hiring and trying to expand because they were hoping to capitalize on the company's exponential growth, right? And then, and then, <coughs> and then sales flattened, and then they had all the all this, all this physical plant and all this payroll that they had to cut. Right, right. So out I went, and Gary went to the, East, the West Coast to work on the cartoon, which, you know, that was a good thing in the end, I guess. You know, for him anyway, and for and for the fans. So then I was unemployed and then it's like I could okay I can either I can either burn a lot of shoe leather looking for a job or I can start freelancing. So I started freelancing. Yeah, so what what did you do? The first thing what? I did um, I there was a product it was called Swords of the Iron Legion and I edited that. It was supposed to be an adventure that used the a battle system rules, which was the D and D first D and D miniatures rules, uh -huh. and they had <laughs> they had all these designers who had worked had done modules, and it was pretty clear that none of them knew anything about miniatures gaming. But they all uh -huh. did scenarios with adventures attached, and and I was handed a stack of manuscripts and try had to try to turn them into viable miniature scenarios and put the whole thing together. And about what year was this? Was, say again? And about what year was this? 
Uh, gosh, I don't even remember. 83, 84. Okay, just putting it into some context, you know. Yep, I was, uh, yep, in college about then. So, yeah. Uh, so you were, um, uh, so this was using Battle System. And um, uh, so what wh what did you do from there? What, what else did you work on? Uh, somewhere along there, I, uh, Gene Raby came in as head of the RPGA and she needed somebody to help her with polyhedron. So I started doing that on a freelance basis as well every other month. And that was about the time I also started writing Sage Advice as well. Yeah, so how did that get started? Like, um, uh, how did you end up doing the Sage Advice column? Uh, that was pretty much serendipity. Uh, they had a big pile of unanswered letters and somebody at TSR decided that they wanted them answered. <laughs> so they hired me to, they had some, I think it was a per letter or per question basis. Just, you know, just answer these letters, please. Right. So I sat there on my Apple IIe and I had a, I had a, I had a letter quality printer. Nice. And I would sit there and I would answer a week's worth of mail and then I would I would send all of that to the printer and go like shop for groceries because printers were that slow. Yeah. This giant daisy wheel printer and I could I could I could literally hear the printer typing away at these letters from a block away. <laughs> so nice. at that at that at that point then uh, Roger Moore was editor of Dragon magazine and he said I understand that you're you're answering questions so why don't you write sage advice because i can't get anybody to do it regularly yeah i said okay well you know here's i have here's an index of all the letters i've already answered because i have been keeping that just i'm not sure why i, would, I kept it i think just so i could find answers in case i ever got into duplicate questions i could see what i've already done so so you must be like quite the expert on ad and d I was at one time. I, I've forgotten a lot of it. <laughs> so, so you, you, uh, uh, can you, you, can you explain the surprise rules? Can I explain the surprise rules? Do you want the way they're played, or do you want the way that they're written? <laughs> oh, the way they're written, Skip. Because <laughs> nobody plays them the way they're written. <laughs> no, because you can't play them the way you're written. They're written. I, they're really. They're not. They're not playable. Um, so the short version of the story is you're supposed to compare the die rolls. And you, you are either surprised or completely surprised, depending on how big that difference is. And the bad guys get up to, up to three rounds of attacks on you. Right. Yeah, it's like one, a full round of, one round of attacks for every segment or every difference in pips every, right every pip of difference but it's but i i believe and I, I don't know if it's i've never seen more than three so i don't remember if that's a rule or not yeah yeah three was a, always like, certainly as i was telling people it's never more than three but yeah those were full attacks so you got something like a, a gargoyle Right. Yeah. Just four attacks in, in D and D, and and you get and it gets you completely surprised. That's twelve attacks from each other. <laughs> it could shred a party. <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah. So, so we can leap so, ahead to exactly how when we were writing that so, had a big that that whole controversy had a big effect on third edition. We're, I think you were part of that, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, perhaps. Oh, I, I, I probably, I probably weighed in. Yeah, but uh, I don't remember exactly who was involved in that discussion. <laughs> but I, I, but I remember <clears throat> thinking about those days pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. So you got So I, I've, I've gotten different, different answers to this question. I was see what, see what your answer is. So did Gary? Gygax, when he ran AD and D, did he um, did he use a lot of these interesting, detailed, you know, miniatures gaming type rules that you find in AD and D, or is that something um, 
that slipped in somehow. I never remember him doing any of that. We never played with minis. Yeah. Gary, it was sitting around his living room or on his porch, rolling the dice. And there were no minis. So a lot of these really fine, fine tune type rules, Gary never used those. Not that I can recall. Yeah. I don't ever recall when Gary was running. I don't ever recall being surprised or achieving surprise. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Don't even I don't even really recall him asking for initiative roles. Now that could be <clears throat> that could be the you know, the intervention of 40 years in there that he's doing that, but pretty much pretty much we he would describe the situation and say, okay, what are you going to do? And then the good guys went and the bad guys went or vice versa. Yeah. Until, until it was done. I don't ever remember initiative rolling when Gary was running at all. You, you think fondly on those days, Skip? Because it's a simple time, that's for sure. Being, being such a, you know, being such a, uh, being part of such a, an important era of history for tabletop games. Um, uh, it must just kind of, does it feel surreal at, at times? It does, because it's really, it's become it's a much different thing. I tell people often, you know, when people tell me that they just discovered role playing, I one of the one of my responses you're going to have a great time and i i envy you a lot because there's just no i don't think there's any period of time that you don't where you enjoy the game more just you get more pure enjoyment out of the game than about the first six months you're playing yeah and then after that you sort of you you become sort of an aficionado. You it's, you become less of an enthusiast and more of a hobbyist. And you start slicing the bologna and and paying attention to the thing and building min-maxing characters. Everybody goes through all of those phases. Your approach becomes much more analytical as as you go, and you you lose that wow fun factor that you have as a neophyte. Yeah, you know, I, I, I jumping ahead, I, I suppose, but you know, when we worked on third edition, there was a, there was always this talk about like, um, and I think some of the D twenty publishers that came in after we published third edition, there'd be like all this talk about like trying to capture that feeling of of what it was like to play in the early days, and I always kind of think, I don't, I think it's more relative to when you start. You know, it is that that era. I, I don't know that D&D &D was better, the experience was necessarily better in any given era. The, the best area, the most, the best era is the first six months, like you said, of, of whatever year that happened to be, right? Certainly seems to be the case to me. I mean, just looking at, looking at social media, it seems to me that everybody's favorite edition is the first edition that they play. Yeah. Like asking people their favorite doctor, who, who's your favorite doctor? Well, the first doctor you ever saw most of yeah. the time. Yeah. You, again, you can become you can become a serious who height where you can really start to analyze and you can make your top ten list and all that fun stuff. But uh but boy, yeah, I suppose, yeah, your first yeah. doctor, the first one you ever saw. Yeah, yeah. What yeah, I think, I think Bond? Right. who's your favorite James Bond? It's the first Bond you saw. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, uh, so you ended up working full time again at TSR sometime in the nineties. When take me up to that? Yeah, so eventually they gave up and hired me back uh, <laughs> to work full time for the RPGA. Okay, but then I was editing editing the newsine all the time and working on tournaments. So that was. Well, yeah, I mean, in addition, you know, in addition to remembering you as Sage, I remember your name as someone who was very well known in the whole RPGA tournament circuit. Somebody who you, you designed a lot of the championship games, right? The uh, RPGA Open Adventures and so on. Yeah, D&D &D Open in there somewhere. A couple of D&D &D Opens in there somewhere. 
as well. RVGA eventually took over the D&D Open as well. So I think I did two of those, two D&D Opens as well, yeah. So yeah, and then I, I kept that up until I sort of got tired of being in the RPGA and said, you know what, I'd really like to move over to the design side. Now there, there might be people that watch this who don't know the RPGA no longer exists, but the RPGA was for years and years the uh, uh, Role Playing Games Association. It was run by TSR, uh, but it was not exclusive to TSR Games. I think a lot of people would argue TS or TSR Games probably got a lot more coverage, but that might have been was that also a function of how much other publishers bothered to try and get their games. That was part of it. Part of it was just there just wasn't the player base. So yeah. I mean, we would go Gen Con and Origins were our two biggest shows every year. Mm-hmm. We did, I don't know, 15 or 18 scenarios at Origins and you know 25 to 30 scenarios at Gen Con every year. And you know, two-thirds of those or more would be DD scenarios. And we would have hundreds of players. Right. The other third would be non DD scenarios, and we we would have a dozen players or less. Right. So there just there just wasn't the audience. Yeah. Not not a huge demand for uh, Talislana. Talislana. I don't know if we ever did Talislana. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> well, we did uh, we did Paranoia, and we did sure. uh, Call of Cthulhu. I'm sure you did GURPS and... Uh, well, I don't remember doing GURPS, but we might have. Yeah, yeah. You did Art Magica when it came out. <laughs> Is, do you know, now, are tournaments, I don't even know, like in the current culture of D&D, uh, are tournaments a thing? I don't know. Do you know? Tournaments in the old RPGA style, I haven't seen any of those in forever. The, the elimination... I mean, right. There are team tournaments that are still done from time to time where whole teams advanced. And there's a there's a, a winning team declared, but the RPGA style where the best role players get voted into the next round, I don't think anybody's doing that anymore. Yeah, I haven't heard of anything like that in a long time. So right. Okay, so where'd you go from there after uh, RPGA? So then I went uh became <clears throat> My title was designer editor. And at that time, um, TSR was trying to get a, a Buck Rogers play by mail game going. <laughs> so they took their one of their designers, Bruce Nesmith, who yeah. had a great deal of computer design job, has a great deal of computer design jobs. And they put him to work on that project. And his whole schedule was then abandoned, was orphaned. So I came on and assumed Bruce's schedule. So I think the first project I worked on, well, the first project I worked on was the, uh, the book of treasures or the book of treasure maps. And they gave me that, gave me that as a freelance project while they were still in the RPGA. And that was that was one of Bruce's projects that they just paid me on the side for. And then the next one was Van Richten's Guide to the Ancient Dead, which was the Ravenloft book about mummies. Mm-hmm. That was the first actual in-house design project that I did. So what were we? Are we in the late eighties now? Been, yeah, late. Yeah, this would have been 86, 87, 88, somewhere in yeah. there. Okay. So that, and then it was a 32 pages of published material a month as either a designer or an editor for for the next several years. So, and what so what lines did you work on for the next seven several years? Um, is it mainly the D and D core line or core line almost exclusively? I got lent out to Ravenloft once or twice. Um, was involved in getting Greyhawk resurrected. It's 6.30. I must have done some FR work in there at some point. I don't remember, but I must have. 
some point. Forgotten Realms. Lent out to the Forgotten Realms at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, what do you look back? Do you have any um, uh, any projects in that time that you look back and are really like, oh, I really remember fondly this particular project or um, so, you know, some story from that time, somebody that you uh, got to work with that you really like working with? I don't know. I mean, one of, uh, one of the biggest ones I did was the Rat of Seven Parts. That was probably the biggest second edition piece I ever did. And that, that thing was massive. It went TSR's infamous two-inch box. Right. Which was a lovely thing, except that uh, the company was, wasn't selling it for as much as it was buying them for. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't your decision. Yep. That wasn't my decision at all. No, it wasn't. <clears throat> Not my fault there. But yeah, that was... I remember that one in particular because for some reason or another, they became very concerned, the management became very concerned that, about what the output was like. So we were required to turn in uh, our work. I, I think it was daily, but I think it was weekly. And it just so happened that I had spent uh, a month and a half planning the project and was now then filling in the outline. So I always had reams and reams of paper to turn over. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> looked like it made myself look like a serious superstar there. Oh, be careful. You're being set up for a sneak attack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Is there a cat stalking yeah. me? Careful, don't get a sneak attack. Or backstab bonus. Let's stay AD and E backstab bonus from the cat. Well, so who did who, third edition? He could do the pounce and I get the claws and yes, yeah, claw claw rake. Yeah. Right. yeah. So what? Um, uh, so who were you working for during those days? Who who were you reporting to? Uh, Steve Winter was the was the was the team leader for the core D&D group. Yeah. Who, by the way, will be my guest in a couple of weeks. So oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, I always wondered, like, um, how do you critique the writing of somebody who's writing a module? Well, <laughs> that's an extremely good question. <laughs> I, can, I can only answer it from my point of view as an editor and and that that is does it work? You know, you know, does the reader understand what the situation is? So many module writers, in my experience, don't don't understand the proper sequencing of their ideas. So, uh, you know. Now, talk. what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the proper sequencing? Of I, the I mean, I mean things like they will make references to stuff that they haven't told the reader yet. Oh, sure. or, or they will somehow get it into their minds that they're right their Agatha Christie and they're writing a mystery module and they've and they've got to hide the big surprise for the end. And it's like you've got to tell the GM what's going on at the beginning, or otherwise right. the adventure is not gonna run. Right. But right. beyond that, I mean does anybody even know? I mean, how many modules get played? I, I, we, you and I had this conversation at one point, I think. So, how many modules get played versus how many modules get read? Is it more important for modules to be readable? Was it more important for them to be playable? I don't, I, I never got an answer to that question. Yeah. Huh. I tried to make them readable and playable as an editor or as a developer. Well, hell skip, that sounds like a good answer. Yeah, because you, I mean, if you don't, you don't hold if you don't hold their attention so that they can read it all the way through, then you're just that, that's a, a fail. It's pretty low, but yeah, right, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, I always kind of wondered, you know, like um, uh, if you have a group of people writing adventures, how much um, you know, did do people critique each other's work, and like, how do people? You know, how was it decided? Oh, this person's really good at writing adventures. We should, we should hire them more often. 
um, how much of it was, you know, you know, grammar and syntax and, and delivering manuscripts on time versus like, oh, that's a really clever plot twist. That on time, pretty important, and making less work for the editor is was pretty important. In my experience, right. So, uh, take me up to uh, when we started working together, nineteen ninety seven. What um, you were still working on the core D and D team, right, up till um, the Watsi acquisition. Yes, yeah, so we had done um, we'd done the players' option and GM's option books, which were sort of the the penultimate second edition accessories, just trying to to add some of these war gamey elements or to get something to to appeal to the really hardcore fan who wanted you know wanted to push the envelope a little bit, so. I, player's option was playing around with the ability scores and messing around with the skill system. And I don't remember what else with that was in really. And then combat and tactics was uh, grid-based combat. And we had rules there for anything from, you know, flying creatures to chariots to cannons in there. Yeah, yeah. Wrestling and overbearing and and trying to break out of that one minute, con the one minute melee round, which was an object of derision for quite some time. <laughs> right, because combat doesn't take a minute, doesn't take a minute to exchange blows, everybody knows that, but that was really a sort of a chain mail holdover anyway. So we reduced right. to 12 seconds. I don't remember how we found 12, I don't remember how we settled on 12 seconds to be brutally honest. <clears throat> well, five, you know, one fifth of a minute, right? One fifth so, of a minute, that may have been it. I, yeah, that could have yeah. been you know, a nice, a nice multiple. multiple. Yeah. So we had these combat rounds versus melee rounds versus so trying to, trying to wedge that back into the system, add this extra stuff without really completely causing the system to capsize. And then we got those books out. And um, I worked on high-level campaigns. No, is, now you're getting close close to my heart. You know, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I, I I think I could rival for just about anybody's claims on doing power gaming. Uh, we were we were over the top crazy playing our our little group of of pre watsy gamers sort of the the uh the circle of gamers that that wizards grew out of um in walla walla washington and we just were out of control we were just back crazy out of control gods pcs is gods that's yeah everything all sorts of crazy stuff yeah i didn't deal with gods per se but trying to get trying to get out past level 20 yeah, what I was trying to do with that. That was probably that was probably the book I felt least qualified ever to work on, and would have been more than happy to start out do it all over again at the turnover time. But it turned out to right. be fairly popular, so I must have done something right with that. Yeah, yeah, I I think you did. I think you did. Um, so uh, the um, uh, getting up to the. Uh, Getting up to coming to Seattle, uh, what was what was it like to uh, pick up your life and move to Seattle for new new corporate owners, new culture, all that stuff? Yeah, moved two thousand miles to a city I'd, I'd never even visited to uh, yeah work for a company that yeah so yeah well it was uh, pretty traumatic. Uh, Penny had uh, started selling Avon and had a pretty good little practice going and she had a good relationship, she had a part-time job with a store owner in town and was really starting to feel comfortable and uh, didn't want to go. <laughs> so yeah, there was, there was a lot of tension. Uh, my mom once suggested that uh, we could probably have traced our route by tracing tr Penny's heel marks. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, well, I, I want to thank you, Skip, for not sharing that with me at the time. 
<laughs> I would have felt I would have felt so horrible. <laughs> well, so it goes. I mean, yeah, we talked about it a lot, but but um, third edition, we knew third edition was coming, and that was sort of a big thing. So, so third edition. Uh, what would you like to say about third edition? Uh, working on third edition. What would you like me to say about third edition? <laughs> whatever you like you know uh i've had uh, monty has been on the show and um uh jonathan's been on the show um it's um i i think uh one thing i'll, I'll certainly say is that you are held in very high regard by the people that you did third edition with um you know jonathan and monty both really enjoyed working with you um what how, how would you describe your time working on third edition how do you describe it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, like a lot of it, I mean, we pretty much went. I made the transition, and we moved out there. I think it was one of the last people to move, as I recall. I don't remember if there was, if not the last people person to move. I'm not sure exactly what. But we came over Labor Day weekend. Okay. I, I think there's a couple artists that would say that would um, arm wrestle you for the uh, oh, title yeah. last, last yeah. one out. And they're probably right. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing sitting around and um, in a, in a nearly empty building before finally packing up and going. Oh, you mean in Lake Geneva, the uh, Lake former Geneva. offices. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, trying to figure, trying to get my computer transferred. Yeah, that was a, so then we got there and one of the biggest surprises for me was nobody at Wizards was, appeared to be aware that we, of all the work we'd already done on third edition, which was quite a bit. It's like, okay, well, you know, we're starting from scratch. Well, well, you know, gosh, we've been talking about this for a year and a half. You know, we've got these plans and that would seem to be news to everybody. Hmm. So that was a little weird. Well, yeah. Hmm. I can imagine. <laughs> you know, and, and we're you know, we had even, in fact, we even in fact looked at some of Wizards products, looked at Magic in particular, and said, you know, this this Magic game does this really cool thing. I think they call it templated text and. And gosh, you know, when they mean the same thing, they always write it the same way. Yeah. Isn't that cool? We should do that for D. <laughs> yeah. So that yeah. was a, that generated an incident. It's like somebody sat down, I don't remember who it was. Somebody sat me down at, when I got to my desk at Wizards and said, let's talk about templated text. And I said, yeah, I think templated text is a great thing. Here's what we should do. And they went, huh, what? You guys don't do templated text. It's like you're right. We haven't been. We should be. We've been talking about this for a while. I remember saying that a lot at the beginning of the situation, uh, beginning of the project. We've been talking about this for a while. So there yeah. was, yeah. It took a while for the gears to mesh. Let's put it that way. Right. 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 And um, your specifically what you ended up doing on the third edition design team your primary responsibility why don't you tell us about that uh the book that has my name on it as the lead designer is the monster manual and i'm not entirely sure how i turned out to be the monster guy but i turned out to be the monster guy but uh, we all did big chunks of all the books and I worked on, Jonathan and I worked together a lot on the magic system. Redoing the spells and writing the general rules and. Do you remember any, um, any meetings or discussions about elements of third edition that kind of stand out for you? Um, like, oh, this was an interesting, this was an interesting time, us trying to figure out this aspect of the system how we eventually got there or you know one thing that has always stuck in my mind is initially getting together and trying to make a change and understanding repeatedly that 
there was a whole cascade of a cascading list of other changes that we had to at least think about first before we could make the change. And that happened a lot. Okay, so what are we gonna do about whatever it is we're gonna do? What are we gonna do about class features? What are we gonna do about you know, about the advancement rate, how fast characters get better, how do characters get better? Well, gosh, then we're gonna have to consider experience awards and we're gonna have to decide whether we're gonna award experience for treasurer and we're gonna have to decide how much experience a monster is worth and we're gonna have, if we don't know any of this stuff, none of these changes are gonna be meaningful. Right. I remember, I remember talking about, uh, uh, sharing a family story. Uh, my dad was an engineer, an electronics engineer for years and years, worked on the bits and pieces of radios and stereos. And uh, they had a plant in Germany they were working with. And uh, one of his colleagues bought a beautiful Black Forest cuckoo clock. Uh huh. Beautiful ornate thing with all of, all the gingerbread and and he shipped it home and his wife got it out of the package before he got home and she didn't know anything about cuckoo clocks uh, and thing about a cuckoo clock is if it winds down the cuckoo comes out right so if you have all the old Warner Brothers <laughs> cartoons where the clock breaks and the cuckoo clock pops out that would happen if you broke a traditional cuckoo clock. Well, she didn't right. know that. So she had it up on the wall and the cuckoo, cuckoo came out. Yeah. And she kept trying to push it back in and the cuckoo <laughs> kept coming out. And by the time my dad's colleague got home, the cuckoo clock was spread out over the dining room table. <laughs> he had taken the clock apart and there was no chance of putting it back together because it was all spring loaded. Right, right. So the removal piece that would all fall apart. And working on D&D, the third edition, what was like that? Everything was meshed together and all these little pieces were propping all the other pieces out. So you, you, you pull out a block to make a change and the whole structure fell. And then it's like, what are we going to do now? And that, we, that happened a lot. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we wound up... Um, writing like little pieces of the rules. We did a lot of that. We wrote little pieces of the rules and we tried to play with those. So let's, you know, let's write this piece of the rule that we're worried about doing now. And then let's, let's put together these kludgy little things that we think are gonna be all the related rules. And a certain executive at Watsi was found that pretty frustrating as I recall. <laughs> Oh, like, what are you doing with all of this stuff? What is this? This isn't ready. What are you doing? Is this? Is this the? Is this? What is this? What? It's like, well, it's what we've got right now. You know, this we got this thing that we're playing with today, and we have these other things that this thing needs. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that was me. Is that you talking about me? Was that certain? Was it gonna? Was it gonna mention any names? <laughs> you can you can mention names if it's if it's good or if it's about me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you can you can say you could be rough on me. I can I can take it. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was a lot of that boy, and there was you know that generated a lot of tension, you know. Um, but I, there just wasn't there was no there was no help for that. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't we couldn't fix we couldn't rewrite the whole game at once. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I I I just I just have the fondest memories of our time together working on third edition skip. <laughs> I look back and think, oh, it was so much fun. Like all those meetings we would have where we'd sit in the lounge and and for better part of an afternoon. And sometimes I'd fall asleep by you and Jonathan, we're going at it about something, you know. There we go. <laughs> well, you had that cubby hole right near the front door. I remember yeah. having informal meetings there. Yeah, yeah, we would meet there. Again. 
It was kind of out of the way. It had big windows. You could see outside. You could see anybody coming out of the building. But it was kind of dark over there. People wouldn't really know you were there unless they kind of went out of the way and looked over there. Right? And uh, um, I, it was it was fun. I, I remember very distinctly. Working. What's that? The cushy little couch right there. So. Yeah, the cushy little couches, little, little area. We sat many afternoons sitting there debating the nuances of what third edition D and D rules should be, you know, and uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, uh, it's, uh, I'm sorry that we didn't pay a lot of attention to what the work had already been done, but you know, you gotta, you know, acquiring Dungeons and Dragons was like getting the coolest thing in the world. You had to, you had to jump in, you know. Well, you had to start somewhere. Right. Yeah. And so since it was two groups of strangers coming together, a big hurdle was okay, where what are we gonna do with the game? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's and we know now, we certainly know now that that those decisions were pretty momentous. Cause yeah, edition is really, if you think about it, not all that much different from first edition and second edition. Not really. Yeah, uh, yeah. But fourth edition and fifth edition are lots different. Yeah. Well, so. Yeah, I I feel like um, fourth edition went way off into the weeds, and fifth edition brought it back a little bit closer to you know the orthodoxy. You know. Me. Well, yeah, yeah, we could spend a couple of hours talking about that but the fact of the matter is agreeing on what the philosophy ought to be that was that was momentous yeah, yeah. so um you know we're getting close to the end of the hour what what have you done um what, what have you done since since those days since uh wh- wh- how long were you at wizard when did you leave um Gosh. Well, it, was in, it was in the fall. Yeah. Then. I, that's, that's okay. We, I, yeah. It's probably around 2000, 2001, 2002. 2000 or like 2001. Yeah, about, like about the same time I did. So did you... Um, uh, you yeah. So, you sorry? It was after you went. Okay. I left in early 2001. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you went back to Wisconsin. What have you what have you been doing for the last 20 years? I've been working for some of the small publishers. Yeah. This one, the other thing, work with Hammer Dog and work with Frog God. And yeah. What what have you enjoyed? Any uh, anything you'd like to tell us about, talk about that you found particularly interesting? Well, you know, the big thing that I picked up since coming back here is, is Gary Khan. So that's, I've been living and breathing that quite a bit. So. Yeah, good, sort of, good uh, job. I mean, kind yeah. of hard to think about anything else when my life's been full of Gary Khan. Yeah, well, that's, uh, um, I discovered Gary Khan kind of late. I, I think it had been going for six or seven, five, five or six years, something like that before, um, I knew about it, and Stefan Picorni was like, "Peter, you gotta come to Gary Con." Like, okay, what? What's Gary Con? You know, Gary Con, huh? <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, good. Uh, I think that's a great idea. Um, great convention. Really glad that um, uh, to have seen uh, Luke step up as um, sort of the heir apparent to the uh, Gygax family name and and um, do this. So good on you for helping him out. Yeah, it's been it could this year, of course, was just really horrible, but so it goes, you know. I mean Yeah. Well, I, I think I think uh it's gonna be a bad year for many conventions. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, We're tough time and a lot a whole lot of uncertainty. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're uh, still trying to get our arms around what it means for uh, for Gen Con. Uh, what it not only you know certainly looks like um, um, 
hard to imagine the conditions will be optimum for um, uh, by by late July, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, Garycon was small enough. We were able to take it, we were able to take it largely virtual. So we were able to del deliver something to people. Yeah, yeah. So what do, uh, you know, looking back over, you know, such a long and illustrious career that you've had in role-playing games, uh, especially TSR products, what do you look back at on as, as sort of, it makes you feel the best. Like, what what have you taken taken away from all all this? Well, it's tough not to feel good about third edition. It's uh, it's uh, it's still got thousands of followers. It's uh, it's spawned its own little imitation game. I mean, it's probably the wrong term, but Pathfinder certainly has its. Pathfinder is third edition. We, we yeah. It's got a life of its own and is very, very much alive. So, yeah, yeah. I I have I I share that assessment, Skip. I look back and um, uh, I think it's um, uh, I feel very proud of what we did with third edition. It was most certainly a lot of fun for me as a uber fanboy it was a like a dream come true you know kid in candy shop with a brand new toy sort of thing um hopefully i wasn't too annoying about that but it was um you know for wizards there were so many aspects of of wizards that um um i felt like um for me that like well i'm i'm really lucky here i met richard garfield and richard garfield ends up designing this amazing game and um <clears throat> so for you know for me the um to be able to uh for us to be able to acquire tsr and continue it and come out with a great edition you know feels it's a much more personal accomplishment you know for for me in some ways well um anything else you want to say or share before we uh, go off the air skip no we've covered it we pretty well covered it all i, I do have a project i have working on now but it, unfortunately it's uh it's uh too soon to talk about i should probably mention um the embers role-playing game which is an interesting little story yes please um, embers is is brand new and i work with a group of kids kids with that in quotes 20 year olds um got together and in Scandinavia and Germany, and they got funding from the European Union. Oh my goodness! To do a role-playing game. Uh, they they sold it as cultural content. Wow! And these guys got together and they pulled out. They they pulled in material from Norse myth and Finnish myth and also Laplanders, huh. and did essentially a post Ragnarok role-playing game for uh for northern europe huh. and they got together and said okay well how do we make this into a game and one of them was somebody i knew from my dnd days said okay well talk to these guys and see if we, we can create a game so so that wow. is being run currently in europe as essentially like it like dnd adventurers league is it's all shared adventures right so now are you are you involved in this in some way well i was i was that is i ultimately wrote the game for them oh great well excellent okay embers e is it emb embers, yeah i can i can send you a link if you is it E-M-B-E-R-S? E-M-B-E-R-S, yeah, e Embers, yeah. Okay, well, people... But World Tree is Burning, that's their tag. Right? World Tree is Burning. Oh, that's great. Well, good. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's great. 
I hope you enjoyed today's new episode of Fireside with Peter Adkison. If you want to catch the show live, be sure to tune in every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on twitch.tv backslash TV. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to stay up to date on all the Fireside podcast happenings. We will be back every Monday with a classic episode of Fireside covering the history of Magic the Gathering and every Friday with a new episode of Fireside Dungeons & Dragons. Again, I've been Marcus from Gen Con TV. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you soon.